to be blown before the year of Jubilee. Are you guys familiar with that concept? Where 49 years, the people of God would live a certain way. They would do business. They would trade. And on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all the debts of the people were supposed to be forgiven. All the slaves would go free. And it would be this massive celebration in all of Israel. They would blow the trumpet to symbolize that. So, so what we're encountering in these... Um, chapters is God is saying, hey, I want you to understand as the people of God that salvation is coming. I want you to understand that rest is coming. I want you to understand that the year of Jubilee is coming, that there is freedom and then there is forgiveness. And despite all of the things that you go through in this world, despite all of the persecution, despite all of the difficulties, all of these things are to announce that there is a final salvation that's coming for the people of God. And, and for us as his people, it's something that we're meant to long for. It's something that we're meant to anticipate. So these trumpets are already blasting, and we're meant to, I mean, the the question that it begs us to ask is, are we listening? Are we paying attention to what God is saying? God is saying to his people loud and clear, I want you to know that I'm coming back, that I'm returning for my people, and salvation is going to be beautiful and final and forever. But the ultimate picture, I think, that would serve us as we look at these seven trumpets is the battle of Jericho. So you guys know that story from the Old Testament, Joshua and the battle of Jericho, all my coming to America friends, right? Anybody watch that? I do. <laughs> like, that was like my, that was my movie as a kid. Like, I helped Joshua in the battle. All right. Anyway, um, you've got to have some moments of levity here. The battle of Jericho. So the people of God They receive this call to go into the promised land. The first city that they come across is the city of Jericho. It's highly fortified. And God says, hey, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to march around the city. So they got the priests. There were seven of them. They had seven trumpets, just like we see in the book of Revelation. And they marched around the city. They marched around one time the first six days. And the last day, they marched around seven times. And when... Um, The priests blew their trumpets, these seven trumpets, and the people were supposed to shout for joy and the walls would fall down. Like that's kind of in the background of what's happening in Revelation chapter 8 through Revelation chapter 11. So you kind of have to put yourself in, in two places as we think about that. So for the people of God, like you can think marching around the walls of Jericho, like all you're doing is marching. You see this real enemy. You see real darkness. You see real destruction that's like in your future. But you're trusting God to be who he says he is. So that would be the perspective of the people of God. But for the people that are inside of Jericho, it it looks like something else. I mean, there's people that are marching around. There's trumpets that are going off. And they're not even bothered by the the sound of surrounding soldiers and the sounds of trumpets. Now, the point of these trumpets would be that some people would respond. I don't know if you remember the story of Rahab in the city of Jericho. She had heard the story of who God was, and she responded by hiding the spies, and she responded by 
responding in fear and worship of the one true God. That's what these trumpets are for. They function as a picture of hope for the people of God that salvation is coming and that justice is coming. But for the the people that are outside the family of God, they are sober warnings that are meant to get their attention before the end of the age. So that's kind of the background that we have. We don't think about justice very often in like I said, it can make many of us uncomfortable, but, but for people like my friends in Nepal, the idea of justice is essential to have Christianity flourish. My friend Chandra met uh, in February of this year. He told me the story of how he and his family were moving into an area to plant a church And people in the surrounding town found out that they were there to plant a church. No one would rent them a room. No one would sell them food. The only place that he could find was like a little shop. um, And basically an apple cart to sleep in. And he and his his wife and two children, they shared two blankets and they would huddle up. Like passages like this are in the Bible to comfort people like Chandra to say, hey, God is going to right every wrong that exists in this world, right? And it exists for people like us to be able to be sober-minded as we live out life in this present world. We don't want to be people that are self-righteous and we don't want to have our veins bulging out when we're talking about the reality of judgment. We want to be like Jesus who wept his eyes out, right? I mean, this is a sober thing, but it's also meant to give us hope. Listen to this quote from Dennis Johnson, who wrote The Triumph of the Lamb. It's a commentary on the book of Revelation. He says, The purpose of portraying these judgments as the descent of burning objects falling from the sky is not to equate them with missiles or meteors or atomic fallout or acid rain or volcanic ash. Rather, it is to stress the destruction that decimates the physical world through warfare, other human evils, or natural disasters. It's ultimately the outworking of God's sovereign purpose, defending his people and warning his enemies. So these trumpets are there to defend God's people in the midst of difficulty and persecution and warn his enemies. So you may or may not agree with everything that I have to say. Um, This has been one of the most difficult passages I've ever encountered in my life, so you're free to disagree with some of the things I said. But what I don't want us to do is to get caught up on one of the particular trumpets and what they mean and miss the big picture, right? This is kind of like when I was in the Navy, I walked into the Sistine Chapel, and you kind of go through all of these corridors, and then you get to this little room, and it's this massive paintings that are all over the wall and all over the ceiling, and you're supposed to just get caught up in the massive scope of what you see. You're not supposed to just get distracted. Now, there's a way to go and get the nuances and appreciate all the work that went into it. That's a little bit about what these chapters are like. We're supposed, before we get into the details, we're supposed to get lost in the big picture that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus loves his people, that Jesus cares about what they are actually going through. So let's begin to uh, unpack this vision. Revelation chapter 8, verse 7, the first trumpet. Hail, fire, blood. 
The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and there were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So a couple of things to notice as you look at that. First is a lot of these plagues, they kind of mirror the plagues that were going through um, the people of God, and they were hitting the people of Egypt during their exodus, during the book of Exodus. So there's a a lot of parallel stuff happening and going on in the midst of this. Um, But also in the midst of this, there is real mercy that's mixed with judgment. Only like a third of the earth is burned up. Only a third of the stars are darkened. Only a third of the sun. Only a third of the moon. So in the midst of all of this, there's real judgment that's happening, but God is still extending mercy. Um, But what we see over and over, um, look at chapter 9, verse 20. It says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So this is God reaching out. C.S. Lewis says this, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's a little bit of what's happening here. God is allowing things to happen on the earth so that people turn in fear and put their trust in the Lord. So there is hail and fire and blood. Half of the, A third of the grass and the vegetation are burned up. Now let's look at the second trumpet, verses 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. So... This is reminiscent of the first plague that, where the Nile was turned to blood in the book of Exodus. But what comes to mind for me is Psalm 46. I think it'll be on the screen for you. It says, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. So this is a picture of a mountain being thrown into the sea. And mountains, oftentimes in scriptures, they, they represent immovable objects. They represent kingdoms and governments. And so what this is a picture of is um, political and economic instability that happens inside of the world. That God uses those things to get the attention of people. That he's actually using all of the chaos that exists inside of the world. So whether it's partisanships or coups or dictatorships or stock market crashes, all of these things are God reaching out to the world to say, hey, I want to get your attention. I have something to say. There's something better to put your hope in than the rulership of man. I want you to put your hope and your trust in the only king that will not fail you. Just hang with me. We're going to get through these, and then there's some really important ways that we're going to apply this. The third trumpet, verses 10 and 11. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So a third of 
the rivers and the springs are affected. Wormwood was a naturally occurring poison that existed in this region, and it made the water bitter and unable to drink. Um, You can study this more on your own, but you can look back at Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. And really what God does is give people the natural consequence of their idolatry. This is kind of being compared and contrasted to the living water that God offers his people. And this is the bitter water that people have because they choose to follow other gods. Yes, this most certainly could affect um, natural rivers and waters and streams. But ultimately, God wants people to use their physical, natural thirst to help them to thirst after the living God. So there's this other warning. Verse, now let's look at verses, or the fourth trumpet, chapter 8, verse 12. The sun and the stars are darkened, and that's reflective of the three days of darkness that happened during the land of Egypt. And an interesting thing that, that we need to understand as we kind of look at this big picture, there's always a distinction that God makes between the judgment that falls on the world and the way that he keeps his people. So we looked before chapter 8, we looked at chapters um, 6 and 7 that talked about God's people being set apart and God's people being sealed and God's people being protected. All of this happens because God um, is responding to the prayers of his people. People are crying out, how long, O Lord? How long will we have to endure the hardship and the suffering? You've got to remember that at this point in time, I mean, people were being used like human torches at parties, like Christians were being fed to the lines. Um, People were being crucified in mass. And so they're crying out to God, God, how are you going to respond? When are you going to vindicate your people? And this is God's response. Now, the fifth and the sixth trumpets, they kind of go together, and they're both um, the release of demonic evil. Let's look. um, The fifth trumpet releases kind of a form of demonic locusts. Now, in the book of Egypt, there was a swarm of locusts that came and it affected the vegetation. These locusts, they come and they begin to torture mankind. And so this is a picture of Satan and his minions coming and distorting. The, The life cycle of a locust is about five months, and that's kind of what's portrayed in the book of Revelation And this means that there are messengers of Satan that come that are specifically designed just to discourage mankind to the point that they no longer want to live. That's the first part of chapter 9. And then the rest of chapter 9 talks about this evil army that brings spiritual warfare among God's people. And we're going to look a little bit more at that next week. But... All of this is to say that all of these things are warnings, all of these things are signs, all of these things, when we see them, for us as the people of God, we're supposed to think victory is on its way. Even though that this is difficult to see, even though this is difficult to understand, these things have a purpose in God's plan, and they're to cause us to long for his return, and it also is to cause us to respond in a certain way to the world. All of those things are warning blasts that anticipate this seventh trumpet, and this is the reason that this is in the Bible, right? If you don't understand anything else, listen to this. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He shall reign 
forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and his saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So despite all of the chaos that exists in the land, in the sea, and the air, and demonic forces, what we're supposed to walk away with is that there is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that is going to swallow up the kingdom of this world. There is going to be a moment when evil is finally and fully defeated forever. There's going to be a moment when justice comes There's going to be a moment when all of our enemies are put under Jesus' feet. All of the fear, all of the shame, all of the condemnation, like all of the reasons that you wonder why you're on the planet, all of those things are going to get swallowed up by the presence of the one that we were created to worship. That's what all of this is leading to, and that's what all of this is pointing to. So, yes, we're supposed to be a group of people that recognize that the chaos, they're just warning blasts, and and honestly, they're meant to make us long for this moment where God comes back, right? When we see things like happening, in Las Vegas and things like happen in the church that, that outside of San Antonio and we see things that happen around this world, we're supposed to say, Lord, we want you to break through the heavens. We want the kingdom of God to swallow up the kingdom of this world. That's why it's in here, right? We don't want to be a group of people that are unfamiliar with the things that are going on. It's not just random acts of violence. It's not just chaos. These are things that point us to the return of Jesus, that he's coming back for his people, that he is committed to us both now and forever. There's going to be a moment where the kingdom of God swallows up the kingdom of this world. Now, this is, this is all of this, understanding these verses to the degree that we understand them, prepares us for how to apply this, right? Because, like, if this doesn't lead to anything, um, you know, I mean, it's just going to be some knowledge. And be like, hey, that was kind of cool. Understood a little bit more today. So we want to apply this in some very real and some very concrete ways. The idea that justice is coming is very important for the people of God. The first way I want to apply it is the idea that justice is coming means that justice is completely and forever satisfied for the people of God. You no longer have to fear judgment. Judgment has been put away finally and forever through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You no longer have to fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Punishment has been put away. Punishment has been placed and laid on Jesus so that all that we experience in this life regardless of how difficult it is is filtered through divine love and divine mercy. It says in the book of Psalms that mercy and justice kiss. And that happens at the cross. So you no longer have to fear these trumpets blasting. Even though they are going on inside the world, justice has been satisfied. Maybe you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ here this morning. This is an invitation, right? Because 
What this does when we talk about the reality of judgment and justice, it exposes us all. There's not one person in here that's inherently righteous. There's not one person in here that's not worthy of judgment. This says, hey, while these trumpets are going off and while you see them going off in the world, flee to the only place that you can find refuge and hope, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that we sang Rock of Ages this morning. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It says, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. So what that is, a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the rock of ages. It is our only hope in light of impending judgment. He saves from God's wrath by taking God's wrath upon him. And it's also a double cure because we get his righteousness. So we no longer have to fear tomorrow. Justice is finally and forever satisfied in Jesus Christ. But also, this has a lot to do with our mission. Justice is our basis for renewal. The fact that there is a new and a better world coming. That's why we labor for orphans to have a home. That's why we seek to care for the poor. That's why we seek to push back injustice that exists in our world. We're heading for a world where racism and segregation and all of those things are a distant memory that Jesus Christ will rule over and reign over forever. So in light of that, we are called today to live in light of that kingdom. We're called today to let the values of that world become the values that we live by in this world. So justice... um, I mean, honestly, that's the whole basis of our legal system here today is the idea that there is a rightness and a straightness in justice, right? So this isn't just some throwaway doctrine for us. It is fuel for us to be the people of God. Martin Luther King Jr. in um, his wonderful I Have a Dream speech says this. He says, we will not be satisfied, and this is quoting the prophet Amos, until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Like That's what we are laboring for. God gives us this picture of impending judgment and the idea that justice is coming so that we will live in the good of the justice that's coming and fight for justice to be um, manifest here today. So that's why this is in the Bible. It's a very important reason. It is the basis for renewal. Um, Next, justice is what makes enemy love possible. Right? This is what allows us to turn the other cheek. This is what allows us, when someone asks us to walk one mile, to go two miles with them, this is what empowers us to receive persecution and to be marginalized and to be oppressed is the idea that justice is coming. That justice belongs to the Lord. It's not something that we have to take in our own hands. We don't have to seek out our own worth and our own value and defend um, who we are. We have a defender and his name is Jesus. Justice is what makes enemy love possible, right? So as the people of God, we should be the people that are most longing for peace, the people that are longing for people to receive what they do not deserve because we've received what we do not deserve, right? That's the message of the New Testament, and that's why it's so 
it's so incompatible with who Jesus is for us as the people of God to be the people that are beating the drums of war, right? I mean, we are to long. Now, we want to, oftentimes, in situations where I don't understand how to pray, I pray for God's justice. Because justice is either going to be met in the mercy and the grace of the cross, or justice is going to be met by him making every wrong right. So, but this takes all of that, the judgment and the self-righteousness, out of our own hands and empowers us to love our enemies because God loves his enemies. Finally, justice coming means we have an urgent mission. Right? This is something that when we live in the buckle of the Bible belt that we tend to neglect when everyone is a Christian, a lot of times that means no one is, right? I mean, the, the bar is just this nebulous thing where people go to church. But what this says for us as the people of God is that because we have received God's mercy, because we have received his love, we want to long for as many people to come to know him as possible, right? And we don't want to use his judgment as like a stick to kind of beat people into the kingdom. That's happened for the last 50 years and hasn't had a great effect. We want to be a group of people that, that longs to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And that's, um, I didn't cover these, but basically chapters 10 and the first part of chapter 11 are an illustration of God's commitment in the midst of judgment to bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is. Chapter 10 is this picture of John getting a scroll from heaven, and he eats it, and it's bittersweet. It's sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach because it's a message that God is going to save and bring salvation to his people, but there's going to be judgment that comes on the world. And that's a hard thing to bear. I, I mean, I, I looked at that scroll this morning, right? There's, there's some bitterness that exists for me to have to stand up and proclaim the reality of God's justice and judgment. But God is faithful that he's going to continue to do that all the way until his return. And then the first part of chapter 11 is a picture of two witnesses that despite all of the persecution that exists in the beast, and we'll talk about the beast next week, um, these two men continue to proclaim the goodness of God's kingdom, and God shows his favor and his mercy on their lives. Judgment is a loud trumpet from God to reveal who he is. But in the book of 2 Corinthians, it says that God makes his appeal through us, right? So, just the atmospheric things that happen in the world and the instability, they're not enough to save people. God makes us his ambassadors so that we proclaim his gospel. So we want to be a group of people that continually look, Father, would you help us? Would you anoint our tongues? Give us an instructed tongue so that we would know how to sustain the weary. Would you help us reach out to people that are being beaten down Right by those messengers of Satan that are lying to them and telling them lies about who they are. Would you use us as instruments of forgiveness and freedom? So justice is coming means we have an urgent mission. And as we kind of almost start to look towards 2018, I mean, there's nothing more that I want to see for us as the people of God is to be a group of people that are passionate about people coming to know Jesus, right? 
This is not supposed to be some holy bomb shelter where we escape God's wrath and we sing his songs to one another. It's supposed to be a place where we say, there's room here, there's mercy here. We want people to come and to know and to fear and put their trust in the Lord. So, I know that is not something that you're going to put on your Christmas card this year, Revelation chapter 8 through 11, but it should be somewhere in the back of your mind that there is this new world coming. And that's ultimately, right, the reason that we can give thanks. It's not just because God has allowed us to be Americans and God has allowed us to experience prosperity, but it's because he has put judgment away from us so we can rejoice and we want other people to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray that right now you would help us to rejoice in the good of who you are and what you've done. I pray that you would help us to understand a little bit more deeply about the reality of judgment, that we would be sobered by your warnings, we would be comforted by your promises. I pray the things that are from you and from your word would bear fruit a hundredfold in our hearts. The things that are from me, I pray that they would fall to the floor and mercifully blow away. I pray that you would help us as the people of God to be who you've called us to be. Help us to be rooted and grounded in eternity. Thank you for the gift of rest and holidays and all of those things, but I pray that you use this book to give us a sense of purpose and urgency and mission, um, even as we interact with friends and family members that don't know you. I pray that you would help us to flee to the rock of ages so that we can find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.